Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. And I'm Sean Kane. This week, one of my friends was visiting from the States and we went to a London attraction and there was a bit about Jack the Ripper and they unveil the photos of the victims. And I whispered to her, I said, imagine being brutally murdered and then, you know, a hundred odd years later, you're sort of part of this attraction. Indeed, for hundreds of years, humans have been fascinated by true crime. But the line between real-life murder and entertainment is often uncomfortably blurred. Just think of all those Victorian melodramas, or indeed the 20th century's ghoulish fascination with Myra Hindley and the Moors murders. Well, two historians are doing their bit to teach us about the real stories of people who suffered horribly in the past. Hallie Rubenhold has written The Five, tracing the lives of the five women killed by Jack the Ripper. And Lindsay Fitzharris's The Butchering Art is a history of Victorian medicine and the birth of germ theory, which weaves in details of real cases and working class lives to show the stories behind the gore. Sean, this was your dream podcast. Why, <laughs> may I ask? <laughs> so I'm one of those people that is, uh, I'm, I'm sort of ashamed and also proud of my uh, fascination with true crime. I, I just absolutely, I, I find it so interesting and I'm not really entirely sure why I find it so interesting, but it, it is sort of a growing comfort to see that I'm certainly not alone, uh, given how popular, how many true crime documentaries and podcasts are at the moment. But I, I when I first heard about Hallie's book, I, I sort of thought, well, th- this sounds right up my alley because I had I've actually only recently moved to East London and um, I have a real I'm just sort of completely always surrounded with Jack the Ripper tours you know down near my my local tube station and there's just this sort of real history of true crime in my new area so I really wanted to read this book and then reading it it was a real wake-up call for how actually in a much more wider sense how we talk about victims of crime and it's a really good book because I think it really forces you. There's a lot of passion and often anger in there from Hallie. She doesn't remain impartial, even as a historian. She's not just recounting facts. She's also sort of dissecting just our sort of our often misogynistic impulse to ignore victims of crime, often women, and focus entirely on their male killer. 
and so her book is entirely focused on the five victims of Jack the Ripper, the canonical five, as they're often referred to. And so that's it, terrible. They're canonical for having been horribly murdered. Yeah. So that there's a couple of other murders as well, either side of these five women that have sometimes been attributed to Jack the Ripper, but it's never been conclusively attributed to him. But these five women certainly were. So we've got Marianne Nichols, who was often known as as Polly as well, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly, and they were all murdered over about eight or nine weeks in 1888. So she basically focuses entirely on them and doesn't at all look at his identity. She's not interested in that whatsoever. And uh, she also refuses to recount anything about the their murders as well. She doesn't go into the, the descriptions of the violence that was perpetrated on them at all, which is a stark omission, but also a valuable one. It's a political omission. Yes. So that, that's sort of why I wanted to speak with Hallie. And then as for Lindsay, uh, who's the author of The Butchering Art, perhaps we can start with the story of how we met and sort of fell in love. I met Lindsay a couple years ago. Many years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were at a publishing do and she was going to be talking about her book, The Butchering Art. And she got up in front of this room full of journalists and publishing people and we're all eating dinner I remember and you pulled out a sheep intestine uh, <laughs> condom <laughs> and started talking about syphilis and I, I was literally sat I was like the closest seat next to your, you where you were speaking and I was just like oh my god this this woman is my dream like I love her so much and I said and, I, and that was the hook I said to the press people that were there I said if you want to talk to me or if you want to come see the 18th century condom come talk to me <laughs> I'm like people did. pushing people out the way <laughs> you knocked you over know. tables it was it was a disaster <laughs> but it, it sort of all ties together in that even though your book the butchering art is about a history of surgery and particularly joseph lister who's regarded as sort of a father of modern surgery this book it, it sort of it ties into my interest in true crime in that it's a sort of history of gore and medicine mm. and sort of and it this intersects in that victorian period yeah as well, exactly it? and actually the, the wonderful thing is i wanted to pair you both together but i didn't really think about it very much to be <laughs> honest i just went i like both of these books and i want to talk about it but then i realized that there's actually a huge crossover between the two in that we have all of these women who were sort of born in the mid 19th century and died at the end of it and then we have joseph lister who was working all throughout this period and then uh, died in the early 20th century, mm. which is kind of incredible to me because having read your book, Lindsay, Joseph Lister is this sort of very quiet Quaker man who is very far removed from the world that uh, Hallie shows us in this book. So I guess uh, I might start with you, Hallie, and get you to talk us through about how you came up with the idea of writing this book and then perhaps introducing us to the five women that you cover. Well, it's really interesting because actually I started, we're going to come, we're going to circle right back to the um, the sheepskirt condom again. <laughs> because oh, good. I, I, I was, um, I, I had previously written about prostitution in the 18th century and about fallen women in the 18th century. And it's something that I find really interesting and that, that world very interesting. And I thought, well, I'd like to move a little bit further into the 19th century. And my first thought was, well, who were the most famous 19th century prostitutes? And I thought, well, that will be the women who were killed by Jack the Ripper. But the interesting thing is, as I started this research, what I found, much to my complete shock, was that I simply was not finding the evidence that one would expect to find when you're doing research into prostitution and into communities. And what I was finding was just the opposite 
in fact, that actually these were women, well, three of the five, there is absolutely no credible evidence at all that they were involved in sex work at all. Two, we know for sure. Uh, Obviously, the last one, Mary Jane Kelly, is the most famous. She was a sex worker. She self-identified. And so, you know, the idea that, you know, you could identify these women just because you thought they were probably prostitutes was wrong. And the police were encouraged absolutely not to do that at that point. So I found it really interesting, you know, and the more I looked for this, this evidence, it just simply wasn't there. And what I found was a lot of convoluted, confused definition of of what prostitution was amongst the working classes. I mean, not just the working class, but the poor. Mm-hmm. And it was it's all bound up with sexual practices amongst the poor, you know, partnerships, sex outside of marriage, um, how people lived with each other, expectations which were totally, totally at odds with what we think of as Victorian morality. Mm-hmm. And bearing in mind that the poor really were the majority, we really have to rethink what we, th- you know, this idea of what Victorian morality was Mm -hmm. because that's the Victorian morality that we're familiar with is the Victorian morality of the middle classes. Yes. I mean, it's it's interesting. I think that when you take the sort of the idea of all these women being prostitutes out of the equation, because they're not all prostitutes, actually what the thing that links them all is alcoholism and and homelessness. Yes. And in some cases, domestic violence Mm. and, you know, a lot of problems. I mean, it's, it's, absolutely chilling because these are problems that we face today these are part of you know as much of the experience of the poor of women of urban life today as they were in 1888 they haven't gone away and and we realize that and we also i mean there's there's so many there were so many modern resonances that you know really made me sit up you know this whole idea for example polly nichols left her husband because he was having an affair with the woman who lived next door and as a woman as a woman with children a woman with children walks away from her husband and she is automatically on the back foot financially she's in a far worse position i mean in the 19th century she went into the workhouse but today women who separate from their husbands generally tend to find themselves in a worse financial position mm. and it's interesting that that hasn't changed really that much no well, let's stick with Polly for the time being because she's the first victim of, of Jack the Ripper. With Polly, it's 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 so sad reading her story because it's so understandable how she ended up where she was when she was murdered and just the indignity of her home life in the end. And it, you mentioned the neighbour before. And, and that's sort of a story that you were never told. We sort of, I think, imagine, you know, prostitutes being murdered and we think of this sort of BBC drama big bodice sort of yeah, like the, tartar yeah, face exactly sauntering under the gaslights you know with the low bodice yes. and 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 also and also you know one of the things the media has given to us over the decades has been this image of the ripper victims being these kind of young 20 somethings these girls you know sexy young girls out on the streets at night you know really wanting sex really these women, the majority of the women, with the exception of Mary Jane Kelly, were all in their 40s yeah. when they were murdered. They had lived full lives. And bearing in mind that life expectancy for the poor in uh, Victorian London, in the city, was in their 40s. 
you know, it's 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 interesting to to consider it in that light as well. Yeah. And so Polly, there's a point in which her marriage becomes very unhappy with her with her husband, and at that point they're living in the Peabodies, which is such an, mm. a, a fascinating concept. But it's a sort. Of, would you mind sort of explaining what the Peabodies is actually, just well, in case people don't know? Yes, um, they the, the Peabody buildings were one of the first public housing initiatives, and and they're still throughout London today. And George Peabody, who was an American philanthropist, left an enormous amount of money to London because he had lived in London and he felt the hold into the people of London he wanted to do something so he gave this enormous endowment to have basically what was modern housing built and it was extraordinary for the time so the Nichols had to apply for this they had to be eligible for it in order to be eligible they had to be upstanding members of the community mm. and so that sort of condition a part of that is that of course public drunkenness is not going to be tolerated in any sort of way and there's this sort of there was a sort of checking system wasn't there that people would come and that's right check that you you know you looked clean and your children had shoes and that sort of thing but then there's this point in their marriage where polly is uh, accused of being an alcoholic by her husband yes which was never recorded as being detected by anyone yeah that's interesting i mean that was very much after the fact so Mm. i mean one of the interesting things is what we know about these women in their lives a lot of it comes from the inquest statements given by people who knew them so polly's effectively her ex-husband william nichols was saying all of this stuff about her she couldn't defend herself against it Mm. so in all the cases of all these women people were making assumptions about their characters were saying things about them they had absolutely no way of defending themselves what we do know is um, from looking at the ledgers and looking at all of the information about the Peabody buildings is that if people were known drunks, they were thrown out. You know, they weren't tolerated by the superintendent. They were incredibly strict there. You know, if you committed adultery and they knew about it, so like, you know, a a woman was thrown out for being a pregnant widow, for example. Mm. You know, this idea, so therefore, you know, this idea that, well, she was a drunkard and her husband split up with her. I think there's much more to it than that. Mm. And actually, Polly's father came forward and said there was more to it than this. In fact, he was having an affair with the girl next door. And there's also the note of one of her friends making the observation that she did not ever see any proof that Polly lived a, quote, fast life. Exactly. Which sort of immediately calls into question this idea that she was ever a prostitute, which is... Exactly, exactly. And that's, it's really interesting, that that interview with that particular witness where when she's pressed, she says, actually... Polly, you know, she didn't want to go and live in a mixed lodging house. She wanted to live in a single sex lodging house. And, you know, she wasn't she she wasn't part of the the fast life. And actually, and this is a quote, she seemed very much afraid of it. Mm. And yet all of this has been conveniently overlooked because it doesn't it isn't part of the accepted narrative. Mm. It isn't what we think of in terms of these women you know well they had to be prostitutes so therefore you know we have this cognitive bias we look at all this evidence and we we pick out what we want to see there and i I mean just jumping in here i i think that even today there's that kind of natural inclination if a woman is brutally murdered to look for the reason why it's her fault you know and why it wouldn't happen to us was she dressed provocatively was she in the wrong place which you know and we still try to do that i think to convince ourselves that we are safer than maybe we are as well as the fact that of course even if they were sex workers nobody 
deserves to be brutally gutted and, and but it's it's just interesting that that narrative about women you know deserving it almost mm. and, and, and is that how you feel like it just kind of grew and attached because we want to look as at them as the other well exactly and and the media really did that for them you know it, the, the way in which the stories were construed mm. were very much you know these were bad women who were out at night and and you know they were dispossessed they were no longer you know the the angel in the in the house mm. you know they were women who were um, no longer a part of a marriage or a family which is what a woman's accepted position was and therefore they should be punished well i, I found the phrase you used a phrase um i think talking about annie and at the point at which she was homeless as well this idea of moral weakness yes that it doesn't almost matter that that you know annie wasn't a prostitute that it's she has shown some sort of defect in her character because she is not at home and she is not with her husband and she's not with children that she is drunk in public yes that it's equivalent of almost in terms of like uh, a moral failing yeah she is yeah it is and i suppose actually with with what you were saying just then with how we talk about crime and we talk about victims it's interesting, I think, that uh, with each of the victims in, in your book, that there's not much detail about the nature of how they were attacked by Jack the Ripper. Um, there, there's a small amount of detail, but it's certainly a far <laughs> step from a lot of the salaciousness that I see around Ripper writing. Yeah. How did you go about balancing that? Because I think it's a very delicate thing. And I actually, when I got to the end of Polly's chapter, it was a real, oh, that's it. Like, we're not going to go into, you the, know, what happened. Yeah, the mutilation and the yeah. evisceration. And I just felt that we know that part of the story. That's the part of the story that we know tons about. And in fact, we go over it and over it and over it and over it. And that is actually ultimately what ends up dehumanizing them. Mm. Because they just become corpses. You know, they are not human beings. And that's always the point of the story we kind of start from is these women being murdered. And then we tell the story of the hunt for Jack the Ripper, which has no closure. Yeah. And so if, you know, we don't need to know any more about that. Yeah. I mean, and there's so much of it. I, I remember, I'm, I'm not going to mention by name, but I was at, one of my friends was visiting from the States and we went to a London attraction and there was a bit about Jack the Ripper and they unveil the photos of the victims. And I whispered to her, I said, imagine being brutally murdered and then you know, a hundred odd years later, you're sort of part of this attraction. And it was this penny drop moment for her. (laughs) She thought, oh my gosh, you know, I think we're not even aware of the entertainment value Mm. of of how we consume this stuff. And I'm guilty as well. Like I I like crime um, documentaries and and, um, crime literature, just like you. And so it's, it is one of those things though, that I think Hallie's doing so well to kind of call out and point out that, you know, we are sort of voyeuristically engaging in in this um story and we haven't really thought about these women as human Mm. and that's why it's such an important book i mean and that's actually part of that the other thing that you do is the the wider context of why and that okay if these women weren't sort of winking at men and leading off a stranger in a top hat and then turning up murdered in an alleyway you know that whole narrative is untrue okay so why were they out on the street alone Mm. at night you know inebriated you know for that and cases like annie who's the second victim everything that happens in her life is tragic and you absolutely understand 
why she might turn to drink to cope with things and then also the circumstances of her husband John and sort of the predicament that he's put in because he has quite well-to-do employers Mm. and they basically give him the ultimatum that either they both have to go or his wife has to go that's right um and it's it's so understandable when even and this actually might be something Lindsay that you can comment on Annie's history with drinking and she's got eight children and then uh, six of them have shown some sort of impact from her drinking that it must be devastating when there is sort of a growing awareness of what alcohol is doing to children. Well, in fact, only three of them lived. I mean, she had a series of miscarriages or infants who were stillborn or lived a couple of days. Her 12-year-old daughter died of meningitis, but her youngest son was born paralyzed. And her other daughter, who survived very clearly in her photograph shows the features of someone who has fetal alcohol syndrome. But, I mean, they were becoming much more aware by the end of the 19th century of the impact of alcohol on people, on their health, the fact that it was hereditary, on the impact uh, on children of alcoholics. It was it was quite, I think, quite a time for medical breakthroughs in the yeah. late 19th century. I mean, it, one thing that a lot of people, before they pick up the butchering art don't realize is that hospitals were places for the poor at that time. Mm. So if you're wealthy or middle class, you were operated in your own home, which is fairly unsettling to us today to think <laughs> about laying on your dining room table and having, you know, a, a leg amputated or having your breast cut off, which certainly happened and is featured in the book. But Lister himself, Joseph Lister, who my book centers on, actually deals with a a domestic violence case where this woman is stabbed by her husband. She has moved out as well. And he confronts her and he stabs her and all of her guts start spilling out on the street. And she is brought into the hospital. Lister is a very young surgeon. He happens to be the only surgeon on call that night. And he does something really radical where he pushes these intestines back in and he actually sutures it, which was very strange at the time because, of course, you'd be worried about infection and all all sorts of um, septicemia setting in. But he does this sort of radical operation. And there's a question of why he actually even thought to do it, which I go into in the book. And he saves her life. And I make the point also that at this time, surgeons were seen as expert witnesses in trials. They're starting to be brought Mm. into the courtroom. And he testifies. And I said that he didn't just save her life. He saved the husband's life because he didn't end up being hanged for the crime. He was exiled instead to your lovely uh, home (laughs) country there, Sean. (laughs) All the fun people turned up. all those fun people uh, turned up there. But... um, but yes, it was it was an incredible time in that sense because all of these conditions, these horrible conditions that the poor people were exposed to, of course, lots of factory accidents and things like that end up in these hospitals. And so one of the things that's difficult for me as a medical historian dealing with the Victorian period was was a patient voice. Mm-hmm. I often don't get the voice of the patient. So a lot of what you're reading in the butchering art is from the doctor's point of view, from their journals, uh, what Lister says in letters. But there was occasionally glimpses of a patient voice. And um, it's it, as you know, it's very hard that's to get the voice really of the lower interesting. class. Yeah, that's really interesting, Lindsay, because I mean, I, I think in terms of history, this is something I personally am hoping that we are moving much more towards, which is we are always, I mean, we're very keen to tell the stories of kings and generals and queens and, you know, umpteen books about people at the very, very top of the pecking order. And there are the most incredible stories of 
ordinary people, which, mm. you know, this is this is a gold mine that hasn't been mined. And I think people want these stories. Like you're saying, Lindsay, that is absolutely fantastic. But it's and hard it's hard to find, you know, where do you is, get those it is. voices? Interestingly, I think I, I came across a source. I mean, a lot of the mental institutions in this country. This is where the third book comes <laughs> this in. Is, this is this where, is the yeah. co-authored book that's coming. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Please it's, us. But there were, there were people who, I think there was a specific doctor. I want to say it was Bedlam. It might not have been Bedlam where photographs were taken and then entire summaries of uh, of a patient's life and their conditions were were kind of listed mm. next to them and their behavior in doctor's notes i know it's very hard to obviously it deduce is, the patient's yeah. the patient's voice from how that. do they feel about yeah. you know and, and that it, it, it you do get some you get middle and wealthy class patients writing about their experiences there's a woman who has her uh, breast cut off in her house and she her name's Lucy Thurston and I, I talk about her in the book and the surgeon tells her that he's the breast has to come off he's not going to tell her the day he returns mm. which would have made me more anxious but anyway he turns up he goes into the house and he opens his hand and shows the knife he's about to use and he says to prepare her soul for death oh. which is any oh. doctors listening oh. not something to say to your patients in the 21st century well <laughs> she prepared but she couldn't prepare for the pain and she wrote her daughter and she said that it was an hour and a half that she was oh. under his hand oh it's very there's a, it's a very bloody thing to take a breast off and, and so, you know, that story resonated with me. My own mother had a double mastectomy several years ago. But again, she was middle class. She was literate. She was able to express and talk and record this. We have that information. So my stories, um, certainly with the butchering art, my story is about a dead white man um, who did something, mm. which was antiseptic surgery. And there was no way around that. He mm. was the one to do it. And of course, he would have been given those opportunities. He didn't even believe that women should go to medical school, for instance, which some people pointed out to me. Why didn't you mention this in the book? And I said, well, surely that would be odd if he was pro-woman. I mean, that would have been more... <laughs> Very really radical. Right? That would have been more worthy of mentioning in the book. I mean, his stance was fairly, you know, normal for a Victorian Quaker. But yeah, as a medical historian, that is one of the problems I find is is getting that voice of that patient. That is um, really interesting. That's a really interesting observation. And also in workhouse documentation. And again, you know, you were talking about hospitals being places for the poor. And I used a lot of workhouse documentation in writing this book. And it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, the workhouse also doubled as the yeah. infirmary. And so there will there are patient histories as well. Mm. And so when patients go in, well, when people are committed to the workhouse, often they go through this process of um, examination, settlement examination, where they are questioned about where they come from to make sure that they should actually be there, that the ratepayers or the taxpayers in that parish should be footing the bill for them and they shouldn't be in Holborn or they shouldn't be in Lambeth or somewhere like that. But what you get with that is a whole, a first person sometimes narrative of this is what happened mm -hmm. to me and this is why I'm in the workhouse. Mm. You know, my husband left me and I have three kids and we haven't had anything to eat for, you know, two days, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And these are incredibly moving accounts. So those accounts are there. They may not, they certainly are not as full as middle class or upper class accounts of people's lives, but they help to give us a glimpse. And then we can fill out their lives lives around the edges by looking at the lives of other people and layering it over which mm. is what I did a lot of in the five and, and that's the the brilliant thing though is because for instance if I was going to just write you know a patient perspective it wouldn't be enough to sustain a book but you've been able to take five 
sort of everyman characters, right, that represent a lot of women in this period or a lot of the poor experience. And then they are knitted around this one horrible event, but it carries that narrative through. And I think that that's why The Five is such an important and interesting book that can't be done by other kinds of uh, histories. And, and, and that really, the thread of Jack the Ripper, although it is, isn't about him, carries us through that every woman that's, that's story. That's right, yeah, it is. I mean, it could, and that's what I found so interesting is often, you know, this idea that, like, these women were all the same. Mm. You know, in many ways, that's the way the poor were viewed in the 19th century. There's this, you know, kind of nameless, faceless mass of grubby, filthy, disgusting people. And they're indistinguishable from one another. And actually, no, they aren't. They have very different lives. And I was amazed to see how different each five of these lives were from one another. They all ended up in the same place, but they all fundamentally were very unique different individuals not surprisingly well uh, people like the the third victim elizabeth who i had no idea was from sweden yeah and has quite an interesting journey from sweden but um undergoes a real indignity and i think this is sort of part of what i find refreshing about this book is that it's not afraid of sort of calling out past practice and not just sort of writing it off as like this is what they did then so it's fine it's sort of you go into the possible emotional impact on a woman to say have to present her genitals to a surgeon in a police station because she's pregnant yeah and doesn't have a husband and elizabeth is interesting in that she she undergoes so much from such a young age so you go into a little bit about the fact that she's she's working in in a sort of service role in a, a family house and that it's quite normal at that time for people working in service roles to have sort of sexual relationships with their masters yeah yeah masters and then she becomes pregnant and then has a stillborn baby but then is also left with syphilis and genital warts yes and then is put on a register of shame which sounds like the most (laughs) damning thing in the world yeah Yeah, so i mean that happened that was in gothenburg and unfortunately elizabeth found herself pregnant and alone right at the time when gothenburg had brought in similar to what we had here which uh, the contagious diseases act which kept lists of of prostitutes and had women who were suspected monitored regularly for venereal disease and she was caught up in this and it it was basically state-run prostitution but I mean it was there were two lists apparently and one was for well-known you know sex workers and the other one was a list were women who were suspected by the police so these were like moral police so a pregnant woman without a partner is going to go on that list a woman who stays out late at night and is seen with lots of men is going to go on that list even a kept mistress you know in her own lodgings is going to go on that list and once you're on that list you can't get normal employment Mm. that's it you have to work in prostitution and as it happened poor Elizabeth had syphilis and she was in and out of what we would call the lock hospital constantly and there's there are records um, and I went to Sweden and looked at these records and eventually she was taken in by a woman who may have been a reformer there were a lot of social reformers who would take women in from these from the lock hospitals and out of prostitution and things like that to give them another chance in life or she may have just been taking advantage of the free labor because Mm. you know all you had to do is pay for this woman's bed and board and you have free labor but it rehabilitated Elizabeth and it allowed her to get her life together and then she was offered a job working in London in a, in a house in, in Hyde Park and immigrated. And which sounds like, like 
it's like ideal when you know Hyde Park now you're like Ooh, yeah fancy. <laughs> well it was then too it was then too and that's another surprising thing you know that's something we don't again it's like oh these stories they're East End stories they're mm. you know Whitechapel stories no actually if you look at the lives of all of these women it's a pan London story but not only that it's you know all over the country as well mm. Catherine Eddowes was originally from Wolverhampton and then ended up going back there and then traveling around the country with her common law partner she lived in Birmingham for a while you know she was in East Anglia she was all over before she came back to London and I found really interesting with Catherine that it's quite a touching detail I think but it's possibly perhaps because of how salacious the case was at the time that hundreds of people turned up to her funeral yes which is in my mind quite touching but also part of me is quite suspicious that that turned into a sort of party afternoon. oh it was I mean that was it was an excuse for that I mean that's I mean it was wonderful it was also we have to remember that by the time Catherine Eddowes had died it was at the height of the Ripper murders mm. and people were on high alert and so, so she was number four she was number four and and she was part of what was called the double event because she was killed the same night as Elizabeth Stride and lots of people turned up to her funeral but it was an opportunity for her knees up also Catherine had a very large extended family of sisters she had been living in Whitechapel for several years by then so she was well known by people and there was you know an incredible tradition of these massive East End funerals also that you've got to give somebody a good send-off and a way the community could demonstrate that they felt particularly bad about what had happened was to actually pay for her to have a good send-off. Reading her story again, she sort of reminded me a little bit of Annie in that there was tragedy involving children and particularly the description of having her child die in her arms, yeah. which was just immediately kind of go, right, of course you're an alcoholic. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, but also starving. You know, I mean, yeah. one of her children died because the child, well, wouldn't feed or couldn't get enough nourishment mm. from her mother's breast because Catherine was starving. They had no money, mm. you know, and that that's... Hunger, starvation, alcoholism, you know, it's, it factors large in a lot of these stories. Ending with the last uh, victim, Mary Jane Kelly, who is the most famous, possibly for the worst reason, in that there are really graphic photos of her, her death and the state in which she was left. And actually, only owing up to what you said before, Lindsay, about being in a London attraction and making an observation, I actually went on a Ripper tour like two <gasps> months ago. Yeah. And basically... Kelly's going to storm out in a second. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I moved to East London, basically, and a bunch of Australians, we saw a group on deal, we're like, oh, okay, you know, we'll go have a pint and we'll go, we'll go for a walk sort of thing. And so we did, and this did, we turned up and there was this woman in a full Victorian garb just sort of waiting for us near Allgate Tube Station. (laughs) And we were like, oh, hello, (laughs) sort of thing. (laughs) And it was fascinating, but it was so amazing how quickly it wasn't funny anymore. Mm. And particularly because this lady in her Victorian garb would suddenly, out of nowhere, rustle up a laminated card with pictures on it. Mm. And when she got to the point at which she showed Mary Jane Kelly's photos, we were all just like, we're out, like this is too much for us it was it was kind of startling and, and yeah. we hadn't we, we were sort of just sort of passive absorbers of the whole ripper story and so we kind of just assumed that it was going to be far less confronting than it was and then afterwards we were just like but oh, you're we, probably we in the minority you're probably in the minority <laughs> to think about it that way i think there's a lot of people who consume it obviously just from the popularity of these tours and i i also want to say because i don't think it's said enough in the coverage that Haley's 
gets is that not only is this an important book and an original book, but it's that originality that has opened her up to a lot of people who feel that they own this subject. And and Mm. it's very brave in the sense that she's come forward not only to tell these women's stories in a very scholarly, well-researched way, but to confront a community that feels ownership over this story as well. Well, let's talk about that for both of you, actually, because that's a really interesting aspect of both of your careers in that you're writing sort of popular, accessible history, you know, history books that people can pick up and they don't need to have academic papers to understand them. But then immediately by doing that, and I was struck by this when I first read Lindsay's book a while ago, it was that just the barrage of criticism that mm. you then either endure from academics or sort of amateurs yeah. that feel like they know more than you yeah and I think also particularly as both of you being women mm. that you know you're putting yourself out in a public sphere as like a as a, a an authority on something it just the amount of criticism that you get is kind of bizarre bizarre, <laughs> yeah, bizarre. So that's yeah. really depressing yeah I mean there is I mean like I'm completely with Lindsay because I you know the, the criticism that I receive is is from both ends I was gonna say just recently I was I was attacked on Twitter for <laughs> making you know because I have written about sex work in the past and I've written about you know women who fell off the path of virtue and I had an academic write to me and say why do you always have to make history so scandalous and I hope well you mean I'm just telling the stories of women who didn't accept the sexual norm or found themselves on the wrong side of the sexual norm why are you saying that I am making history scandalous you know that's that's absurd and it's that and then the other extreme is what Lindsay was talking about as well which is I'm faced by a community of people who feel very possessive over this subject matter of, so of people Jack called like ripperologists people call ripperologists and who seem I mean there's a whole lot of gatekeeping going on it's like you know you can't talk about this you can't be an authority on this unless you pass through us mm-hmm. unless you include us unless you talk about our work it isn't this can't be accepted as you can't have an argument that's legitimate you can't have possibly been able to come to conclusions that we didn't come to and it's it's absurd it's absurd the book isn't even out yet at the time <laughs> that we are talking and i have had i am not joking at the very least 8 months of this, mm. of people complaining about me on on private forum sites, saying, you know, I mean, like literally hundreds of pages, <laughs> disparaging me as a person and disparaging a book which they haven't even read yet, mm. and it is extraordinary. And then at the same time, also claiming that when the book comes out, they're going to make very unbiased judgments <laughs> about the content of the book, and they're going to have an unbiased round table talking about the book and reviewing the book well i think you know the the unbiased ship has sailed quite some time ago um but it's it you know it's ridiculous you know it's a book it really shouldn't get people that hot under the collar mm. but you know it's the thing is too like i i got a glimpse into this bizarre world by just promoting her book on twitter <laughs> <laughs> people came after me and i just thought this is the weirdest thing to be this upset as you say about a book that hasn't even come out yet and surely the idea of scholarship is that we're always building upon scholarship and so if people are coming to new conclusions that's wonderful of course we want to hear that 
But there is that idea of ownership when it comes to history, whether it's coming from sort of an academic viewpoint or coming from an amateur viewpoint. I, I would even say fetish with Ripper. But I don't get it as much as you do at all. But there you is, get it from another end. I get though. it more from the academics who think I'm bastardizing the history of medicine. And when you go on YouTube and dress like a big condom <laughs> and tell the history <laughs> of condoms, you know, it might be a fair point. <laughs> it's so good, though. Look it up. I, yeah. I definitely I have no shame when I'm talking about history. But the thing is that I, I'm a storyteller. And if you go to my Twitter or Instagram profiles, I call myself a storyteller. And then I, I'm a historian second. I love connecting with the stories that excite me, the little girl in me that I would want to see come to life. And I have a lot of fun with it. And I do question whether some academics (laughs) like history anymore. (laughs) But there are wonderful, of course, academics doing wonderful histories. And I think the thing that's frustrating for me is that popular and academic history don't have to be at odds at all. Mm. We should be working together to build that bridge. Um, But often it's seen as maybe a threat. I don't yet understand why. I do understand the concerns of academic historians feeling that their work is pilfered, you know, by popular writers. But, you know, when you pick up a book like The Five or The Butchering Art, there's more notes than text half the time, you know? I mean, we, we extensively cite and credit. And I'll always be the first to say, you know, I'm, I'm standing on the shoulders of many academics Absolutely. who spent a long time Absolutely. doing that kind of work. And I wanted to come back to what you were saying earlier about your experiences on a, on a Ripper tour, mm. which is so interesting because I think a lot of people come to Jack the Ripper completely disassociated from the real story. From Because Jack the Ripper, I think, you know... Over 130 years, Jack the Ripper has ceased to be a human being. He's become like a supernatural creature, like Dracula. You know, you I read about Jack the Ripper, and often the name is, is cited in the same sentence as Dracula or Frankenstein's mm. monster and things like that. And you become disassociated from the reality. This is a real person, and he killed real people, and this really happened. And, and I think what you were saying was so interesting about going on one of these tours because it was when you were confronted with the actual photographs and when you were there and suddenly, oh, this isn't a joke. This is for real. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that's it, that it it became very, very sobering. But I I think a lot of people might not have that reaction. Can I ask you both, just as a sort of note to end on, have you got any interest in who Jack the Ripper was? Or do you sort of (sighs) think that actually at this point it's... It's by the by. We're never going to find out. And that's it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so funny. I mean, that's like the one question I get asked. (laughs) Um, uh, Okay. So my feelings are this. First of all, we are not going to... I cannot see a a situation whereby we would actually find out who Jack the Ripper was. Because, Mm. I mean, what people don't realize is that a lot of the evidence, the actual documentation that we base all of these investigations on is severely compromised. I mean, more than half of it is missing. Mm. We only have bits left. So all of the conclusions we're drawing are are from that. And, you know, witness statements about somebody who saw somebody down the road by gaslight from behind. You know, it's ridiculous. And, And also, criminal investigations have moved on so much. You know, there's so many things that we don't consider. You know, when, say, for example, a witness board goes up 
on a street, you know, appeal for witnesses. And 20 people may come by with what they think are sightings of something or another. And maybe only one of those will actually be valid. So why are we to suppose that Mm. anybody recorded in these inquest statements actually did see anything relevant? So that's that's really important to put the documents in perspective. Mm. But also, who was Jack the Ripper? Well, I think the one thing I feel fairly secure in saying that Jack the Ripper was not a toff because walking around the very poor parts of London, even if you were wealthy and you had put on the clothes of poor people, and lots of journalists did this at this time, people like Jack London, it was still immediately obvious (laughs) that that person was not from there and that person was not poor. And that person would have been clocked, especially after the first or second murder had happened and, and the whole community was on high alert. So I would say Jack Ripper was somebody from within the community. And I think that may be the only thing we will ever be able to say about these I mean, could it even be that he was multiple people? Yeah, I think it's entirely possible. I think it's entirely possible it could have been a a number of people. It could have, well, it could have been one person committing the murder, another person standing guard. It could have been any number of things. But at the end of the day, it's really not that important. Mm -hmm. It was 130 years ago. Anybody who had anything to do with this, I mean, Jack the Ripper's dead now. Mm. You know, this is how Hallie breaks the internet. It's (laughs) not that important. (laughs) Everybody gets super upset. Oh yeah, yeah. People will. Well, people hate me already, but they're gonna really hate me after I say this. And you know, there's a lot of this kind of belief that oh well, justice for the victims. No, justice for the victims is served when we learn about the victims Mm. and we respect them as five women, five individuals, five human beings. Finding their killer is utterly irrelevant today. That is not justice for the victims. What are we going to do? We're not going to hang him. You know, (laughs) it's sorry. It's, you know, it's over. Yeah. Time to move on. That was Hallie Rubenhold and Lindsay Fitzharris. Time to move on, they say. So, Sean, word on the street is that there's a TV series being made about the five already. Will you be moving on or will you be watching? Will it be hugely disappointing to you to see it doubly fictionalised? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's the sort of thing that I think if we do see it, uh, if it is put on, on TV, it's going to have to remain true to Halley's politics. That It's going to have to not show anything to do with their murders it's you know it's going to have to really take a step back in a way that a lot of true crime television shows don't you know they always revolve around the murder even start with the murder whereas these this tv show is going to have to start with their lives and not even touch on the murders yeah, at all it's quite challenging <laughs> dramatically quite challenge. <laughs> um but it's sure to be interesting and i think it certainly with a lot of the problems that these women faced and the lives they lived certainly weren't attractive in any way so i think that's also going to be a struggle to depict and not glamorize it and not sexualize these women that were in their 40s and show them up as like tarted up 20 somethings which sort of has been the tendency for a lot of ripper depictions on telly so i'm looking forward to it and i'll be interested to see how they do it The Five is published by Doubleday and The Butchering Art is with Penguin. Both are out now. In next week's podcast, I step out into Epping Forest with author and journalist Luke Turner to retrace the steps that took him to a place of healing in his memoir, Out of the Woods. Has the natural world played an important part in your well-being? Does nature writing make you feel better? Tell us about your experience and share your favourites on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane. And our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Goodbye and thanks for listening.
For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.